We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. Mike and Kenton here celebrating the joy of the season. <laughs> we are so excited to be in December. We're so excited to start the book of Matthew. This is our story. Christmas, this is our story to tell. And we're going to tell it the way that Matthew uh, does. We just started a brand new series called One because we're sitting in one book from Christmas to Easter. It's one story, the story of one life. And we're very uh, eager to uh, dive in and to sit in the words of Jesus for two or three months, which is you know longer usually than we uh, spend time in it. And we uh, began this last weekend by looking at the genealogy, which by far is the most thrilling part. Would you agree with that, Kenton? Yeah, everybody gets moved by names. Yes, lists of names especially. That's right. Um, that's why the book of Numbers is so popular today. <laughs> we, um, so we start, we start with the genealogy. What's, what's one big thing that was a surprise out of the genealogy that you wanted to make sure the church heard? Well, I think the idea of the names, it starts with this powerful thought, Jesus the Messiah who is the son of Abraham, son of David, these three dominating names in the Old Testament, which shows that Jesus has the right to rule. But then he breaks that whole, you know, all the names are into, he basically is telling the story of 2,000 years and the story of the whole Bible. God promises to send a Messiah. You have Abraham, blessed to be a blessing. And then it goes from Abraham to David, all these good things that happen. God's going to fulfill his promise. But then the people of God don't follow. What's going to happen when, when the people aren't doing what God's told, God told them to do? And still, God fulfills his promise. David to the Babylonian exile. Easy for you to say. Yep. And then from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. And so there's the whole story of God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And so it's good news for all. But even more than that, the names of people that God identifies or that Matthew identifies, because Matthew, here is a guy that is thinking, what are the odds I ever get into the story of right, Christmas? Right. Tax collector, a bad guy, nobody loves me, and yet Jesus chooses him. So when he sits down to write the Christmas story, I think with a smile on his face, he starts going through the names. And so, Mike, as you were thinking about it, if you were going to give the names, I mean, contrast how we as Americans in the American church, we choose certain people to tell the story of Jesus. We want to highlight certain things. Yep. And yet that's not what... God does it all. It's not what right. Matthew does. Yeah, he leads with this epic sentence, Jesus, the Christ, son of David, son of, uh, son of Abraham, son of David. And then you're expecting this killer resume. And uh, as he goes through these three different sections of 14 names that tell the story of Israel, there are names in there you'd never expect. And so we were looking at Rahab and Tamar uh, and Bathsheba and, and you know Judah and that whole story and David and Bathsheba. And it's just crazy. The dudes... The dudes are weird, but then he goes to great lengths to uh, highlight some women that just that just wasn't done. And in the American church, one of the things that we you know we know to be true is that if we're going to highlight to our world the work of Jesus, we're going to pick the best and the brightest. Look, you can be a genius, you can be an athlete, you can be a politician, you can be a celebrity, and you can follow Jesus and look at how look at our best and our brightest. It, it's almost the reverse with Jesus. If Jesus were going to be here today, um, and the genealogy is any indication of the kind of people he would highlight, then it would be a completely different list of people. The broken people, the people that are just recurring sinners that crawl back to Christ every single time, beg him for forgiveness, and he promises every single time to forgive. 
the, the, the people that, you know, on their deathbed come to Christ, the last gasp second, you know, and, and um, as Jesus treated the thief on the cross, so he'd treat people today. You'll be with me today, he would say. And so there's just this interesting contrast between the resume we would give to Jesus and the resume Jesus gives himself through Matthew. And that was what was powerful, is that this, the Christmas story turns out to be a story about everybody. It's not just a story about the idealized, only the faithful, only the clean, only the pure, only those that, um, you know, really get it. This is, Matthew makes sure to tell a story so that people like him are included from the outset. So it's our story, and That's it's right. good news. And so when the angels say it's good news of great joy for all the people, we have that sense that it is good news. And it isn't just the good news of the seasonal activities, the right. trees, the decoration. Right. Good news, families together. Good news, I'm healthy another year. That's right. It's good news, and it's great good news. So the challenge is how good is the good news you're celebrating during this season. And That's the right. good news should be the incredible truth that God loves me so much, even though I'm broken, uh, I'm damaged, I'm a secret keeper, I'm a notorious sinner, I've got a story, the good news is for me. We're all included in the Christmas story. Yeah, and he draws near. He's not repulsed by the unclean. He's not repulsed by the unsavory. We think we got to get cleaned up before... I get, you know, back to Jesus. And especially when people come to church during the season and they don't come to church normally, they're thinking, well, I'm not a churchgoer. I've got this big past. I've got a big secret in the present. And the Christmas story is about a God who draws near right in the middle of all of that craziness. This is what we're going to be talking about this weekend. Right. And so you look at joy. We talked about joy and peace. You talk about joy. I'll talk about peace. Peace is that sense of when I give up trying to renegotiate my sin, with my goodness, mm-hmm. and I come to Jesus and say, here's, here's my sin and I'll be honest with it. That's when I find peace. I'm not trying to earn it. I'm not trying to deserve it. I don't have to minimize it. I don't have to rename it. I, just, I come honestly to Jesus and I say, here's my sin. I'm not going to try to bring my goodness to you. That's where I find peace. I like How that. do we find joy in this well, season? Joy Biblically, joy is related to the presence of God. So Paul will talk about joy in his great uh, prison epistle of Philippians. Easy for you to say. Mm -hmm. Um, He will, uh, you know, we'll hear about joy as he writes to uh, the church in Thessalonica. He'll talk about how they heard and received the good news of great joy, even in the middle of all of their trials and tribulations. Joy is so much different than happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. It comes and goes. It's personality. Some people have a predisposition towards it. Joy is something much more profound. It's whenever God is present, so it's attached to the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and of course it's attached to the incarnation of Jesus, God taking on human flesh. So good news of great joy is something that we celebrate, even if we're not feeling it. The reason it's joy, as opposed to anything else, is because life's biggest questions are answered in the coming of Christ. Does God care? Does he, is he real? Do, do I matter? Uh, what's, where's purpose and meaning and significance? All of that is wrapped up, and that's why we have to keep fighting in the middle of the Christmas holiday season to tell the story the way it's told in the Bible because we miss out, because we sanitize it, we domesticate it, uh, or we totally miss the point. And the world knows we need it. I mean, those emotions, the emotion of joy, the emotion of peace, that's what everyone's looking for. Right. And it's what we want. And it's found in the Christmas story. That's right. We um, enjoy, just to go one more, one more step towards that, joy uh, is something that has to be shared. Joy is never a solitary emotion. Joy is a communal emotion. So whenever you see something great, 
you want to talk about it, right? right? That's why we go to movies with people and plays. I mean, it's like you see a great something, a piece of art or something in nature, and you just have to tell about it. And that's the Christmas story is it's not, it's not just Mary alone or Joseph and Mary alone. It's this community of shepherds and it's these kings and it's this whole community waking up to the fact that God has drawn near. I like that. You don't get joy until it's expressed and you draw other people into that's it. That's right. That's Good. exactly right. Now, we have, as always, wonderful questions that come in, and we encourage you to keep asking questions. Uh, for those of you tuning in, we're so glad to have this opportunity to do this. Uh, one question on the message a couple of weeks ago uh, was sent in. It said, hopefully this isn't late regarding Kenton's most recent giving message. Since I'm a member of Mariners, is that where all of my 10%, and I'm assuming he means 10% of his money, ideally should be going, or does that also include other non-Mariners ministries and or charities? Does God care where slash to whom I give as long as it's in his name? How would you answer that? Well, there's a few questions in there. One is, I think in the biggest picture, giving is the most important thing. We want to be givers. And where we give is important, but that we're givers is the first thing. Yeah. And then from the next questions, I don't know that there's... Well, I'll just tell you from my life what I do and why I do it. First of all, there's an assumption in your question that when you reach 10%, you're done and you never have to think about giving. It's sort of a bill that you're paying and 10%, you hit it and, and now that's all you do like mechanically. Tipping. Yeah, for the rest of your life. 10% is, is really this picture of that's a place that you need to be, but it isn't a place to stop. And for Lori and I, we give more than 10%. And so what Lori and I do is we give... 10%, the first 10% to the church. And I love that because Jesus promises to build his church, to bless his church. I think the church is the hope of the world. But then we give over and above, and we give to outreach ministries, which is to the poor and the needy. And we give regularly to that, and we're very committed to that. And so we want to do that. And that's over and above. And then when uh, we are building buildings, uh, we gave over and above to that. And we live our lives so that we're always able to give as needs come up. So we see ourselves as managers. We manage our, our lives so that we give regularly first to the church. Then we give to the poor and needy. We give to, the, to a number of different things in the world. But we are always ready to even go beyond that as God provides us opportunity. So that's what we do in our life. Uh, and that's our model. So, Mike, what would you say to it? To uh, I'd absolutely agree with that. One of the most profound lessons I learned about giving was I thought once I paid him off, the rest is mine. Biblically, it's all his and I get to keep some uh, to meet my needs. And that, you know, it sounds kind of trite or cliche, but that shift from understanding it's all his and I get to use some for myself, my family, um, was a really big deal for us because it, it reframed generosity. I always thought the 10% number was the magic number, and it's a huge deal. Um, but for some people, 1% is a huge deal, getting out of debt so they can give 2 or 3 or 5 or whatever. But I thought it ended at 10 and just like you, one of the things that God has enabled us to do has been to say as an act of worship, and one of the reasons why I love giving to the church uh, is because I don't control where the money goes. There's this, this even in charity, there's this sense that I want to know where my money's going. I want to have control over how it's used, and I evaluate, just like I do everything else. 
And that's a powerful thing, but there is something about laying it at the apostles' feet, the picture that we get out of Acts, where we just trust that God will use this money and multiply this money in ways that I don't have control over. And I think that's another aspect to it. So I love the question. I love that you're wrestling with these things. The biggest thing you hear us saying is that generosity is a, a position of the heart. And uh, it's never, ever in the Bible something that is a mechanical formula that says you're generous if you give this much. Um, a woman gave a very small gift that Jesus remarks on uh, in the Gospels compared to the large gifts that are given next to her. And Jesus says she gave way more because she gave out of her need as opposed to out of her surplus. And so I know folks uh, in our community that are trying to live on less than half of what they make so that they can be generous. So it's never never a comparison thing. It's between us and God, and it's certainly not mechanical. Anything you want to add after that? No, I love that. Well, fantastic. Good. Uh, one other question uh, that we have that we want to wrestle with. Um, there is this very crazy uh, picture we get of the Christmas story in the book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah that's it's, one that you're not going to hear in any no, church. No, no, and, and it's, this, it's about Jesus coming, and, and, it, and it's this kind of really allegorical picture of a dragon and a woman and giving birth, and, and, and it, it's, it's, it speaks to the fact that the coming of Jesus um, was not just big news in, in this realm of reality, but it was big news all over the place. And, and we get questions uh, lots of the time about spiritual warfare, about whether or not Satan is real. And we figured, well, here's a Christmas card you're never going to see uh, if you want to read that Revelation passage. But it does, it does raise the question a little bit, how does this stuff work um, in, in the bigger picture, in the bigger sense of things? What, is Satan real? How do we know? How does Satan work? Right. Yeah, the greatest lie in the world today isn't that, is that there really isn't another world, that it's only this world and That's we right. live in this world. And Jesus sure thought Satan was real and talked about it that way. And Jesus... Uh, was tempted by Satan. And what you get is this great cosmic uh, battle pictured in Revelation where Satan understands what's going on at the birth of Jesus and he wants to kill Jesus from the very beginning. The easiest way to see that happen is Herod decides or passes That's this right. edict that all uh, children, all males, uh, little boys would be killed. And so you, and he does that trying to kill the Messiah. That's a sinister thing. I mean, at that point, Herod is inspired by Satan and trying to stop this whole story of the redemption that God is bringing to this world, the Christmas right. story. That's he right. wants to stop it, but it wasn't just there. I mean, it, then as Jesus goes, you have the temptation, That's right. That's right. you have the whole, uh, idea of Satan trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. All of these stories in it, this great, powerful story that kind of is pictured in Revelation from the red dragon, which is uh, the picture the Bible gives over and again about Satan, That's right. which is so, it's, I think it's kind of cool. I do, I do too. And, you know, whenever you talk about stuff like this, there are two extremes you got to avoid. One is to, to freak out and to say spiritual warfare is behind every burnt piece of toast or parking spot I didn't get or you know, mole on Aunt Sally's back or, you know, what? there's an image for you. Um, for those of you that have Aunt Sally, I dearly apologize. Maybe she has a mole. I'll pray against that right now in the name of Jesus. So, so we can, we kind of can go overboard, but the, and, and what you're saying is exactly right. The rest of us, because it gets weird at times, the rest of us just pay no attention 
at all. And one of the things we're not going to talk about in Matthew's part of the story is the reality of the, this invasion of the spiritual realm. Jesus understands this Satan, this Satan, the accuser and adversary, to have great power in this world. He calls him the, uh, a prince or archon of this world in the book of John. He is somebody that has authority that Jesus comes to rescue us from. Uh, and, and, it is, and he's pictured as way smarter than we are, yeah, way yes, more powerful than yes. we are. And so when we make him trite, he loves that. Right. And, you know, when you go into the two-thirds world, they're much more aware of it because it That's happens right. in kind of obvious ways. But in America, it doesn't have to happen. The, the sinister ways that it happens, in my mind, is debt. People get locked up in debt. And so Satan doesn't have to worry about it because he's already locked you into uh, a cage of a kind. And so the way he operates is much more on this grand scale. That's right. And he has a marketing department. Yeah, he does. He has a marketing department. I mean, literally, the advertising of the world that keeps us constantly content or discontent, excuse me, uh, is an avenue. I mean, you see, I've had had pastors come and, and say, well, this is the reality of spiritual warfare uh, isn't as real here. And I'm going, well, no, it's so prevalent that right. we're just numb. And you go to movies, you say, what are the lies it's telling me? The lies that I, right. I'll i find life in materialism. I'll find life in extramarital affairs. I'll find life in a big job, power and success and money. And all of these things are just subtle lies that are coming that's through right. that says, well, maybe that's true. And it is such a powerful lie when you see it uh, right there. That's right. The Christmas story comes and wars against, in a very real way, the lies that hold us captive, the lies that we're too fallen, that we're too sinful, we're too ugly, we're only in hiding, are we safe? Uh, And the Christmas story says, no, no, God is willing to draw near in the mess and in the craziness, and wherever light appears, darkness flees. And you see this all throughout the story, we'll see it through Matthew, but it's a part of the Christmas story we don't always talk about, and we just wanted to comment here. Uh, any last thoughts? This week's going to be an exciting week. Mike and I are going to explain Mamzer. Mamzer. What is that? Mamzer. You're going to ha- spell it backwards, ponder it in your heart, treasure it up, <laughs> sing songs about Mamzer. It's a huge part of Christmas. It is a huge part of Christmas. Find out why this weekend. On behalf of Kenton B. Shore, I am Michael Erie signing off. Farewell. <laughs>